Good morning. It is good to see you all. We asked Scott and Heidi if they would tell their story on that video for you for a couple reasons. One, because we're so encouraged and we thought you would be by just their obedience to the Lord. Uh, and obedience to the Lord, friends, is always, you know, when you're, when you're uh, looking at the scriptures and this call to go and make disciples, that's for all of us. And then I love not just their obedience to the word of God to want to make disciples, but also then uh, for you to hear a little bit about how that played out in the specific nuances of where God specifically was guiding them and to what specific way of making disciples is good for us to hear and be reminded of. And then as Scott said, just say yes to what the Lord has for you. And we as a church also want to affirm uh, that God is indeed calling them. And that's a part of God, how God speaks into our lives is does our community of faith affirm uh, how, where God is sending us and how he's sending us. So we're just so encouraged to affirm them in this calling from the Lord. And so we wanted you to hear a bit of their story. We are supporting them as a church as they go out, as Scott said, about eight months from now. They are in their process of preparation, training, and financial fundraising. So we also, while we're supporting them corporately together, we wanted you to have opportunity to consider prayerfully supporting them individually as well. So that's part of why we wanted you to hear their story as well. So as you pray about that, if God leads you uh, to perhaps get behind them and support financially, just contact the church. We'll put you in touch with the Mitchells. They can tell you more of their story and where they're headed, uh, and we can help you get connected in that way. So we wanted you to be aware of that today. All right, let me pray, and then we're going to dive into Lamentations chapter 1 together. So we thank you for the Mitchells. Uh, we look forward to over the next eight months as their church family helping them prepare, <clears throat> coming alongside them, blessing them, uh, affirming them again and again, uh, and Lord, helping provide for their needs. So we pray that you would guide and direct them and that your hand of favor would be upon them and that you would multiply the work of their hands for the sake of your kingdom and your glory. And Lord Jesus, we pray now as we turn to your word that you would give us wisdom and insight and understanding. We thank you for this book in your scriptures that teaches how to lament a language which many of us just don't practice much and are somewhat unfamiliar with. And we pray that you would teach us more. We are your people. You are our teacher. And so we pray that you would teach us and instruct us. You are our Lord and we obey you. We want to follow you. So have your way with us now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you got a Bible, you can turn with me to Lamentations chapter one. And um, as you're turning there, let me ask, anybody a fisherman? Anybody, anybody like to fish? Fisherman, fisherwoman, anybody? You know, a few folks. Can I let y'all in on a little like confession? I really don't like to fish. I find it to be really boring. Anybody else find it to be kind of boring? So <laughs> maybe the only, only amens I'll get today, maybe, who knows, but I'll take them. Right, so I just I remember going out when I was young and fishing, and you know, you know, my family was not big. Like my dad didn't fish really, uh, and I had some buddies who loved to fish. I remember going out and just being so bored, just throw the line out, reel it in a little bit, throw it out again. I was apparently terrible at it because I caught nothing ever, uh, and I just I just found it so slow. Like I was I like basketball, I like things that move. I like things that like there's a fast pace to them. So I did not love I did not love to fish. So. But then since moving here, I found out that fly fishing is like a big thing. It's not really a big thing in Texas. Not a lot of spots to, spots to fly fish. Uh, a good buddy of mine, Matt, loves to fly fish. And so I, I've said to him numerous times, I've talked to a pretty big game about fly fishing. That sounds a lot more fun. It sounds active. It sounds like something where I can cast over here and then cast over there. And it just sounds like, you know, you've got to be accurate with the cast. I like to throw things. That seems like it would be a lot of fun. And so I have probably told him and many others at least 30 times in the six and a half years that I lived here, I'm going to learn to fly fish. Can I tell you how many times in the last six and a half years I have gone fly fishing? What do you think? Yeah, the answer is zero. 
right? And all the talk in the world is not gonna make me good at fly fishing. If I wanna fly fish or learn how to fly fish, I have to do what? I have to go fly fishing. And so, you know, I thought about that this week as I thought about this book of Lamentations, which we're beginning our journey through, and how many of us are probably not as familiar with this language of lament. And we probably would at least give some amount of lip service, like I did to fly fishing, uh, about this idea that, yeah, lament's important for a Christian. Learning to grieve and, and express sorrow is important for a follower of Christ. We, I, I doubt there's anybody here that would say to that statement, no, I disagree completely. Right, you probably, you know, would comprehend that to some degree and go, yeah, I'd affirm that. But m- many of us are, have just have no practice of it. No real practice of lament. I, I've recognized in studying this book and talking with my life group this week, I said to them, I don't, there are elements of, of this type of lament that, that this book is saying need to be part of my prayer life that have just never been part of my prayer life. Going to the Lord in complaint has just not really been a part of my, it's, it's not something I have ever truly brought to the Lord in any real sense. So I, I told you I'm learning with you. We're gonna learn together in this book. It's very true. Um, so I just, the, the call here from the scriptures, our goal in this series is that we would learn together how to lament so that we could not just give lip service to it like I do to fly fishing, but perhaps actually be people who learn how to bring this sort of robust idea of lamenting in prayer to the Lord. Now remember, last week we learned a couple things. I just wanna highlight them by way of review, okay? Last week we learned that the reason for lament is not just to learn to be sad, right? Yes? It's not just to learn how to be sad. It's because we don't experience the fullness of hope that God has to offer us until we learn to lament. And that's really the biggest reason that the book of Lamentations and the scriptures in the Psalms and in other places like Jeremiah point us to this idea of lamenting. So it's that we would be more full of hope and that we can't have that unless we learn to lament to the Lord. And the second thing I wanted to remind you of is that there are six parts to to biblical lament. Uh, And we looked at those. Now, not all six parts are always present. Some are present when the suffering we're enduring, which is bringing about our lament, uh, is rooted in our own sin, which sometimes happens. There are consequences for the choices that we make. And when we do that, there are elements to lament that are there that aren't there when the thing we're lamenting has nothing to do with our sin. It's just something we're enduring in life that the hand of God has chosen to bring to us. And it's not because it's a disciplinary action. It's just because he has sovereignly brought that into our lives. So those six elements are these. Number one, choosing to talk to God. Just remembering that lament is prayer. It's talking to the Lord. Number two, that uh, complaint is a part of lament. And we're gonna see that today. That confession is a part of lament, particularly when it's born out of sin in our lives. Request, bringing a request to the Lord. Trust, a statement of trust. And commitment to take action, particularly in a different direction if we've been going in the wrong direction. So those six elements are parts of lament. What I wanna do is I wanna read Lamentations 1 to you today, and we're gonna try and answer this question. How are we supposed to lament the feelings of abandonment and isolation that come from suffering. So have you noticed that when you go through the fire, when you go through a tough time, there's this sense of being all alone. Have you felt that before? A sense of perhaps even that the Lord has abandoned us. We're gonna find that the author of Lamentations is gonna say just that to the Lord. Uh, And throughout the book, he's gonna say that. This sense of that we have been abandoned, not just by you, but by our friends, our allies, all those who we relied upon, they're not here. And that's a reality that comes with suffering, is that often we feel very alone. Now, as a church, one of the things that we hope to practice is coming alongside one another in difficult days so that no one goes through things alone. But 
can I just tell you that even if that happens, and it happens well, not with a lot of uh, someone coming alongside you to offer a lot of hope in counterfeit areas or ways or trying to talk to you, but just even someone who just comes and sits and grieves well with you, even when that happens, haven't you experienced that as good as that is, you still feel the sense of aloneness because you know they can't fully and truly understand what's in your heart. There's a way that what you're feeling even kind of slips past language, no matter how much you might try and express it to someone else and say, this is what I'm feeling, this is what I'm going through. You find that it sort of escapes the ability to be captured in your words. And because it feels that way, there's often, with suffering, with difficulty, there's often a sense of isolation and a sense of abandonment that fills our hearts. And the author of Lamentations 1 is saying to us, let me show you a bit about what you can do with that, how you can approach it. So we wanna see if we can't answer that question today. And there's three parts of his lament that we're gonna look at. We're gonna look at how he complains, what that complaint to the Lord looks like. We're gonna look at what his confession looks like because his suffering is caused by the sin of his nation. And then in addition to complaint and confession, we're gonna look at what, what does he ask God for? What request does he bring to the Lord in the midst of this? I mean, and that's really gonna be instructive for us. What do we say? What do we ask God for? when we find ourselves in these moments. So, let's read Lamentations 1. I'm gonna read the whole thing to you. It's 22 verses. I want you to read along with me. We wanna get the full feeling, uh, the full scope of this lament. So just, if you will, 22 verses sometimes. I know our minds wonder. I want you to focus in and see if you can. If you start, if the mind starts to wonder, click it back in. Be like, no, focus, all right? So here we go. Lamentations chapter one, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become. She who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The road to Zion, the roads to Zion, mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan, her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head, her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wondering all the precious things that were hers from days of old. When her people fell into the hand of the foe and there was none to help her, her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see, 
If there's any sorrow like my sorrow, which, is, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high, he sent fire into my bones. He made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint all the day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand, they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears. For a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, but there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you peoples and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns, my heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious in the street, the sword bereaves in the house, it is like death. They heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announced, now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. For my groans are many, and my heart is faint. That's Lamentations 1. Strong language, yes? As you read it, the thing that stands out, now there's a lot of elements here, and we're gonna see many of these elements again in chapter two and three and four and five, but the thing that stands out about this chapter in Lamentations chapter one, this specific lament, is that the major theme of it is this idea of being abandoned. Did you notice how often the author was saying, there's no one to comfort me. All my lovers, all my friends, all my allies, they're not here, they've gone away. So again and again, the author turns to this idea, this lament, that there's, there's no friendship, there's, there's no one around. He is in isolation and alone. Now, a couple things to remember here. In verse one and two, we saw him start with this phrase, how lonely sits the city. That's the very first word, right? This idea of loneliness. I'm all alone, so how lonely sits the city. Remember, this is a communal lament. So it's not just one person saying, I'm going through this. He is lamenting on behalf of his whole nation, his whole people. He's saying the nation of Israel, the people of Judah, are going through this exile uh, from our home, and Jerusalem has been destroyed, and the temple has been torn down, and her fine things, her articles of worship have been taken away, and he's commenting on that. And so he's grieving for his people in a communal sense. That's important to keep in mind, that it's not just a personal thing, but it's, a, it's related to his being a part of the people of God and what they're going through. Then in verses four and five, he says this, the roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. What he's getting at there is he's saying there used to be a day where <clears throat> he's equating Zion and Jerusalem, and I'm gonna talk about that, the equating of those two things together here in just a moment as a part of why they're going through what they're going through. But 
those two things, Zion and Jerusalem. Zion is the mount on which the temple is placed adjacent to Jerusalem. And so the author is saying it used to be that all the people would come from all the outlying cities and regions of the nation and they would come for the religious festivals. They'd come for Passover. They'd come for the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. And they would come to worship the Lord and offer offering sacrifices to him and to praise him. And it was this joyous time where the people of God would gather to worship him and we would remember that we are his and he is ours, and we're together, and he is worthy of our worship, and that no longer happens, and he's devastated by it. He's recognizing that even the ability to gather together and worship God has now been taken away. Now, here's what I wanted to get to. Part of the complaint that's being offered here is really revealing, and it's intentionally revealing, that the author of Lamentations is bringing these two things together, this idea of Zion and Jerusalem. Now, this may be unfamiliar to you, but all through like books like Isaiah and Jeremiah and the Psalms, Jerusalem is, is sometimes referred to as Zion, and sometimes Zion is pointed to as this heavenly mount, this place where God's final and full reign are going to happen. And so because that's there, in Psalm 2, actually, we, it's this messianic psalm where G, it's talking about Jesus and he's gonna come back and he's gonna establish his kingdom on Mount Zion, it talks about in Psalm 2. So there's this way in which the people of Israel assumed or understood that Jerusalem and Zion were one and the same thing. But a true biblical theology of Zion and Jerusalem shows that they are often equated, but they are not always the same thing. And here's the why that's key. Because the people assumed that there's no way Jerusalem could be conquered and the temple torn down regardless of what they did and regardless of their sins because it was Zion and that's the place where God is going to reign forever. Therefore, Jerusalem cannot be conquered. Does that make sense? That was their thinking and God said, oh no, no, no. Zion is not about necessarily this specific spot Zion is where I'm gonna establish my rule and reign and I am going to rebuild Jerusalem and I am going to do a work through it, but your sin can still be punished and Jerusalem can still fall. You shouldn't make the mistake of believing that no matter what you do, my favor must rest upon Jerusalem because I have so often equated it with Zion, the place of my eternal reign where I will establish my kingdom forever. In other words, he can bring a punishment upon them, but they did not expect it and they are completely disillusioned. They had this understanding of their place within God's favor, and because all of a sudden they weren't in that place anymore, or God wasn't exercising that favor in the way they expected him to, that he was actually disciplining them for their sin and bringing judgment upon them, they were completely disillusioned by, it might be something like this, and forget, it's a bit of a silly example, but imagine, how many of you are the type of people that when you were in school, or if you're in school now, you say, hey, I probably failed that test after you take it, and then afterwards you find out you got a 97. Some of you, those people? Yeah, you are, you people, come on, right? How many of you are the type of people who were pretty sure you did awesome on the test? 97, aced it, probably didn't miss a question, actually 100, and then you find out you got a 72, right? Like, yeah, so you're like, yep, that was me, right? See, it's one thing, it's one thing to fail a test. Nobody likes that, it feels terrible. And if you walk out of a test and you go, I know I failed that. Like I've walked out of some tests in my life where I was like, oh yeah, that did not go well. But it's another thing when you walk out and you say, I nailed it. And two days later you get your exam score and you're like, oh my goodness, what happened, right? It, there's this disillusionment that sets in where you're like, oh my goodness. And that's kind of what's happening here to the people. They had this understanding of themselves that they were somehow free from being under the disciplinary hand of God, 
by virtue of being in Jerusalem and by virtue of being God's chosen people and by virtue of what he had said about Zion. And so when the author of Lamentations is reflecting on Zion and Jerusalem, he's intentionally drawing their attention to that and saying, you had a misunderstanding about what it meant to be the people of God. Now let's bring that into the new covenant where, where we now live under the cross of Jesus, where we are God's chosen people. All who come to Jesus by faith are his chosen ones, his chosen people. And as a result of that, we experience the favor of God and the blessing of God again and again and again. But lest we forget the lesson of this text, we shouldn't assume that being God's chosen people means always getting what we want. And we shouldn't assume that being God's chosen people means that he won't bring his hand of discipline upon us where we don't walk in faithfulness to the covenant we have with him. When we don't walk faithfully, we experience discipline. Hebrews 12 tells us as much because he's a good father who knows how to discipline the children he loves. And one of the themes that we're gonna see throughout the book, in fact, next week in Lamentations chapter two, this is gonna be one of my, one of my foci, uh, is that in, in Lamentations chapter two, the question seems to be like, I, I can't imagine that being your people that you have allowed it to get this bad, that it can get way worse than you would ever imagine it could get when you are actually the people of God. Now listen, friends, it's not true that God has actually rejected the nation of Israel, right? There's still purposes we see in the new covenant that he has for the nation of Israel that he's going to bring about. And it's not true that he'd rejected them even here because he was still working out his redemptive plan through them. The Messiah was still gonna come through these people. And 70 years after their exile, they would be reestablished in Jerusalem and he would bring back the walls of the city and rebuild them and he would have the temple rebuilt. So there was still work that was gonna be done. He hadn't totally rejected them, yet his hand of discipline was upon them in a massive way in the, at this time and they're experiencing this disillusionment and they're bringing their complaint to God uh, and saying essentially where are you you seem to have abandoned us now listen let me ask this question why is it important to bring the sense of abandonment to God so as we see this complaint here that's offered throughout and I just read a couple of those verses to you chapter verse 1 2 4 and 5 and we see them all throughout why is it important to bring the sense of abandonment to God? Here's why I think, the, I'm gonna give you a couple, but here's the primary one. The primary reason I think it's important when we feel abandoned in the midst of our suffering and we would come to God and say, you, have you abandoned me and where are you? I mean, you have to ask, is that appropriate when we know theologically he has not abandoned us, right? We believe in the security of salvation. We believe that Jesus has said he's never gonna leave us nor forsake us, that we belong to him. If you are in him, you will remain in him. You will not be snatched out of his hand. And because we believe in the security of salvation, we have to ask, is this kind of lament appropriate? And I think it is, not just because it's here, although that's a big reason, because the scriptures give it to us here, but also because what's happening when we lament this feeling of abandonment is we are rightly prioritizing our problems. We are recognizing that the greatest problem we have is that we have a break in relationship with the Lord. When there's sin on our part and we break faithful covenant with him, we experience this sense of um, this sense of isolation from him. And what we're essentially doing is we're saying, my biggest problem is not, if you're the nation of Israel, is not that I've gone into exile. My biggest problem is not that the walls of my city have been torn down. My biggest problem is not that the temple has even been destroyed. The biggest problem, the biggest problem is that I'm separated from you and I need to be close to you. Does, it, does that make sense? This lament helps the people remember that that's their biggest problem. And when you and I lament this way, when we say, Lord, where are you? It feels like you've abandoned me. 
what we're saying to the Lord is, you are what I need. My greatest problem is this. It's not whatever else is going on in my life. And that's a good thing to learn to pray. It's a good thing to learn to experience. So that, that's the first thing. The other thing I think learning to experience this lament does is it guards us from a couple of errors that we might make. And the first error is sort of silent self-pity where we would think we're lamenting, but that's not true lament. Just to sort of silently pity myself is not true lament. In fact, we don't actually even see that in it. Now, there's a place just to sit before the Lord in silence, of course, but you're with him in that. So just to sort of silently feel sorry for myself is not true biblical lament. And we can be guarded against that by bringing these kinds of laments to the Lord. The second thing it guards against is the opposite end of the spectrum, which is blaming God towards others. So coming and complaining about him to others. If I complain to him, where are you? I'm talking to him about it, and I'm not coming over here to you and saying, the Lord has left me, he's abandoned me. That's also not true biblical lament. Are you with me? So bringing that into our prayers, I think helps guard us, guard us against those two errors. Now, Let's then turn to this idea of confession. So we, that's, that's kind of how the author gives us complaint and guides us in how we might bring that as a part of our lament. Now remember too, complaint is not, is not the last word in biblical lament. It's not the last word. It's not the only part of our lament. There's more to it. So we don't leave ourselves. We don't stop at just a complaint. So here's a confession. Now remember, this is sin that is caused by the, this is, sorry, suffering that is caused by the sin of the nation and therefore they're experiencing this God's hand of discipline, God's hand of judgment. But even when, even when it's not a result of our sin, because there is suffering that is not caused by our sin directly, right? That we didn't bring it upon ourselves. We're not experiencing a disciplinary hand for it. There's a reason why suffering tends to create abandonment. I could have led with this, but I wanted to put it here under confession because the second part of this relates really closely to it. When we see the author getting into these places of confession, it begs the question, well, why does, why does suffering create this sense of feeling alone? And there's really two reasons, I think. The first reason is that sometimes we have a false presumption, and that false presumption is, if God loved me, I wouldn't be going through this. If God loved me, I wouldn't be going through this. This, in fact, is connected to this thing we call the problem of evil, uh, which if God is all-loving and if he's all-powerful, then surely this evil couldn't exist or come about in my life or broadly. And it's one of the reasons why many people reject the idea of the existence of God. Now, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna fully sort of um, try and explain away why that's not great logic. I just wanna deal with sort of a results-oriented idea here for a second. If you begin to enter into suffering, whenever it comes into your life, whenever you enter into whatever fire you're gonna go through, if you have begun from the place of saying, if God loves me, I won't have to endure fires, then once you're in the fire, you no longer have any hope. You, you have begun from a place that has set you in a position that you can experience nothing but devastation because now I'm in the thing that if God loved me, I wouldn't be in, therefore I'm in it, therefore God doesn't love me. And that's about the only conclusion you can draw. So what is the fruit of believing that, that type of thinking? It's bad fruit. Now let me give you an alternative. Now again, I'm not gonna prove this alternative. I'm just gonna offer it to you and point to the results that it can bear, the fruit that it can bear. The alternative is to say that God is big enough to have reasons for what I'm going through that I don't currently understand. That's the, that's the alternative, okay? And if that's true, if I start from that position, let's ask what fruit that, that bears. 
I might go through something and it might, God might have reasons for it. I don't comprehend. And now I begin to go through it. And as I begin to go through it, now I have a resource because of where I started, the foundation, the framework from which I started. I now have a way to go through that in such a way that it can produce hope and trust and perseverance rather than simple devastation. The first line of thinking only leaves you with devastation. The second line of thinking can lead you to, through fires, trust and hope and greater perseverance. Yes, you see it? All right, again, I'm not proving that that's true. I'm just making a point that the results of the second are far better than the results of the first. Now, there are really, really good reasons to believe that the second is actually true. It's true according to the nature of the world and the way of God, all right? But I'm gonna leave it there for now. That's the first thing I want you to see. Suffering creates isolation because we begin from the wrong framework often. The other reason suffering creates uh, a sense of isolation and abandonment is because when, it's, when that suffering is caused by our sin, what we have done is we've broken covenant with God and therefore, having broken covenant with him, we are essentially uh, violating through our idolatry, through our sin, we are violating a marriage covenant, if you will. We've committed adultery against God. And when you commit adultery, what happens? There's a break in intimacy, yes? There's a break in relationship. And when you experience that break of relationship, you can't help but experience a sense of being alone, being in isolation and being lonely. And that is very true with God. While he doesn't break covenant faithfulness with us, we break covenant faithfulness with him. And when we do, why would we expect to experience anything less than a lack of intimacy with him, a lack of closeness with him? He may have gone nowhere and we would still experience because of our unfaithfulness, this sense of fracture and therefore a sense of abandonment and loneliness. Does that make sense? That's part of the reason why. Now, again, in this scenario, remember, here's what's happened. Let me just kind of give you a few historical details. There's a reason why, in verse, let me just read the verses to you. In verses two and in verse eight and verse nine, look at the language that the author uses. He says, Talking about Jerusalem, she weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her what? What does he say? Among all her lovers. Why does he use that phrase? Who's he referring to? What he's talking about is foreign nations that the nation of Israel and the kingdom of Judah, the southern part of that nation, had made alliances with. So they saw Babylon coming. And rather than trusting God, and doing what he said, they said, the only way to save ourselves is to make alliances with these other nations. And they began to worship their gods as well. And in doing so, they forsook God and they broke covenant faithfulness with him. That's why he uses this language of lovers. In verses eight and nine, he says this, Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. In other words, this is a promiscuous bride, a promiscuous spouse. Verse nine, her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. She has, therefore her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. In other words, he's saying there's no feeling of comfort, but rather there's a feeling of abandonment. Why? Because she has broken covenant with God. Now friends, it's important for us to understand and to think about our sin in this way, that when we bring it in confession to the Lord, what we're really confessing is that we have been unfaithful to our vows with the Lord if that brings some flesh, puts some meat on the bones of that kind of thinking. It's not just saying, Lord, I did the wrong thing. It's saying, Lord, I have forsaken the vows that I have made to you. I'm in covenant with you through Christ, and therefore, while you have been completely faithful to, to the covenant that you have invited me into, I have been unfaithful. 
And that's part of why we experience this sense of isolation. Now, let's think for a moment because that's why we experience abandon, a sense of abandonment, uh, or at least a couple of reasons why. Now, I said yet last week that there are going to be throughout this book opportunities to apply it's truth to both our personal lives, to our corporate lives as a church, as the people of God. And I don't just mean West Shore Church, although, yes, that applies to us, but also just the church broadly, all the people of God around the globe, right? And also at the national level. So let's just think about this confession, how this example of confession might instruct us to bring our confession as part of our lament before the Lord. At a personal level, we can certainly see what I just said, that it's incumbent upon us to recognize our sin for what it truly is and to bring it to the Lord and not sort of whitewash it or not try and pretend like it's something less awful, but rather to say, no, this is what it is. It is unfaithfulness to you. It is breaking covenant with you. And that should devastate us in the way that breaking our marital vows should devastate us were we to do that. Now, that's at a personal level. At At a church level now, think about this because and this is an important distinction to make. I, I made this point last week. We shouldn't draw a straight line always from Israel as a nation to our national experience because Israel's a unique nation. They, are, they have a covenant with God and they are called the people of God in the old covenant through whom he raised up a deliverer, the savior. And now the new covenant after Christ, the people of God is who? It's the church. And so when God convicts the nation of Israel and says, you've been unfaithful in this way, the most direct application is not to America because America has no covenant with God. God has never said to America, you are my chosen people. We've experienced the blessing of God, certainly. Right? There's lots of good work God has done through and in uh, our nation, but it is, we are not, as a nation, the people of God, nor is any other nation in the world. The church is the new covenant people of God. Now, that being the case then, Think about what he's saying to Israel here, to Judah. He's saying, you saw evil coming, and rather than trust me, you chose to make covenants with other nations. You chose to trust somebody else to save you, and you even began to worship their gods. And so the application for the church, I think, is a pretty straightforward one. It's for us to ask, when we see evil encroaching and perhaps even coming directly for us, who do we trust to save us? Who do we look to to save us? Do we look to make covenant with other parties, other entities, with other groups? Do we, do we look to other things to save us? Or do we turn to the Lord in trust? The call to God's people is always turn to the Lord in trust. Turn to the Lord in trust. Depend upon him. Don't try and please others. Don't try and make covenants with others that will somehow save you or prevent uh, you know, evil from coming. Trust that the Lord is gonna establish his kingdom and trust that he is the one that you look to. So, that can play out in a thousand different nuanced ways, but it's at least a principle that that we need to bring into play for us. Yes? Yeah, that's clearly the call here in the book of Lamentations. And then lastly, at a national level, it's good for us to recognize that as a nation, in myriad ways, we have turned away from the ways of God. We have rejected his truth. We have called what he calls good, bad. We've called what he calls bad, good. We've done it again and again and again. And as a nation, not being the chosen people of God, but just as any nation should, recognize that God is the God and king of all nations and that all nations owe their allegiance and obedience to him and where we have forsaken his ways, it's appropriate for us as a part of our nation to say, Lord, forgive us. Lord, we confess our sins. Lord, we ask you to turn us from our wicked ways. And that's a way to bring our confession to the Lord on behalf of the nation in which we live, right? So there's just a couple of ways to think about applying this confession part of prayer, of lament, 
into our lives. The last one is the shortest, and it's, it's the, uh, the last portion of the lament is the shortest, and it's just simply this. It's what does he ask God for? What request does he make of God? Now, he does a couple here, but there's one that stands out because he repeats it several times. We find it in verse nine, verse 11, and verse 20, and listen to it again, because here's what he says. He says, Lord, behold my affliction. In verse 11, look, O Lord, and see. Verse 20, Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. What's he saying? Do you hear it? He's saying, look, see what's going on in my life. I'm enduring great difficulty. Why does he say that? Well, apart from the fact that the Lord is omnipresent and sees everything always everywhere, to sort of put this in human terms, to look, you have to be where? You have to be there. You have to be present. You have to be in the room. If If you're gonna say, hey, Trent, look at this, I'm gonna have to be somewhere nearby. And so when the author of Lamentations is saying, look, Lord, see, Lord, what he's doing is he's saying, I need you to be with me. I need you to see what I'm going through and acknowledge what I'm going through. And go back to what we said. What's the greatest problem? It's not anything else other than the fact that there's this sense of separation from the Lord. And so the request is very simple. Don't complicate it. He says, just be with me and let me know that you're with me. When you suffer, it will be hard to experience the nearness of God and to know that he's present it will be hard. And this should be your prayer. Lord, I know you're here. Help me to know it. Help me to see it. Help me to know that you see me. I'm asking you to see, to look, to behold, and to let me know that you see and look and behold. Are you with me? That's an important thing, friends, when you go through the fire, to learn to ask God, to make that your request. Above all else, Lord, see. Lord, behold. Lord, be present here with me. Last week, we saw in Hebrews that Jesus, our great high priest, has suffered in order to establish his kingdom, in order to establish us in that kingdom. He suffered so that we can know when we suffer that he knows what it's like. He's been there with us. And this week, could I just remind you as we think about this idea of abandonment and isolation caused by suffering, these feelings caused by suffering, and as we learn to lament those things and bring them to the Lord, could I just remind you of the words of Ephesians chapter two that the Lord has promised, not only that he has suffered as we suffer and greater, but that he will never abandon us. Here's what the words of Ephesians chapter two say. The cross of Jesus is the guarantee that you will never truly be alone Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now I love that because it doesn't just say that we have access as in other places the scriptures tell us, that we can come near. It says we have been what? Brought near. The image is as one who was far off and wasn't invited to come near, but was picked up and carried near. And then remember the words of Psalm 73. At the end of that psalm, after reflecting on how evil seems to be prospering and nothing seems to be going right, the psalmist, after prayer and looking to the Lord, says, now I see it. As for me, the nearness of God is my good. Friends, trust that you have a great high priest, our King Jesus, who has brought you near to the throne of God and in bringing you near has made it so that the nearness of God is not for your retribution and not a danger to you. The nearness of God, as the psalmist has said, can be your good because of the work of Jesus. Let's pray together and then worship him to close our time together. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your work and your wisdom. We pray that you would take your word and plant it in our hearts now.
pray that you would teach us how to lament, teach us how to come to you and to say, you feel far off, where are you? And to make that request of you, be near, help me to know that you are with me. Teach us how to confess our sin rightly to you and to see it for what it truly is. Make us wise, make us faithful as you are faithful. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.